Hi, and welcome to the Homeschool Snapshots podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and this is the podcast that gives you a peek into the lives of the homeschoolers next door. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of the Homeschool Snapshots podcast. I am so happy you're joining me here today. Well, I have to tell you that we take listener requests very seriously around these parts. Whenever we get a request from a listener, it usually comes in via email, then we really, really try to get the person that is requested on the show. And Charlotte Gleason, our guest today, was one of those listener requests that we got. And so we reached out to her and we got her to come on the show. And I'm so happy we did. She was such a joy to talk to. Charlotte actually teaches at the university level while she homeschools her three younger kids. And so she has some great perspective to offer homeschooling moms who are in the trenches of homeschooling, kids who are under age 10, but also prepping high schoolers to get ready to go into those English composition and English literature classes that she teaches when she is away from her own children. So it was a wonderful interview, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. And we'll get on with it right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Homeschool Snapshots podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics. Do you want to bring classical music into your children's lives? You can add music to your homeschool curriculum today with Maestro Classics. These award-winning CDs and MP3s feature storytellers Yadu and Jim Weiss, accompanied by the world-famous London Philharmonic Orchestra. Choose from a dozen titles, including Peter and the Wolf, The Nutcracker, and our family's favorite, The Story of Swan Lake. What makes Maestro Classic CDs so special is that each CD and MP3 contain a 24-page activity book, with illustrations, puzzles, games, and fun facts for kids. You can even download free curriculum guides that combine classical music with science, math, geography, and other subjects. All CDs and MP3 sets include tracks, which explain to your children how the music was made, who the composer was, the history and story behind the music, the instruments used by the orchestra, and most importantly, how to open your ears and really listen. Listening is a learned art, and Maestro Classics guarantees that these recordings will explain and develop listening skills in your children. Visit maestroclassics.com for free shipping on all CDs and MP3s. They start at just $9.98. As a Homeschool Snapshots listener, you can receive 17% off your order by using the coupon code PAM at checkout. Go to www.maestroclassics.com. That's maestro, spelled M-A-E-S-T-R-O, classics.com, where the best classical music curriculum awaits your homeschool. Charlotte Gleason is a mom of three who homeschools her children just outside of Philadelphia. With bachelor's degrees in both Bible and education, as well as a master's in liberal studies, she is a former high school English teacher turned professor of English and composition at Cairn University. Charlotte stays active in the homeschool community by teaching online for Veritas Press and by teaching poetry at her local co-op. She joins us today to give us a peek into her homeschooling story. Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Well, start by telling me a little bit about your family. Right. Well, I'm married to a wonderful man, a very supportive husband, and I have three children. My oldest is 10. My middle 
is a, she's a, my daughter and she will turn nine in November. And then my youngest just turned five. So pretty good that the older two are 20 months apart. So they're at each other's throats all the time, but we're kind of trying to work through that. We also have 15 chickens, three dogs and three fish. Of course, they're part of our family. And we are kind of in an interesting area because my husband and I both are kind of country people. I grew up in Lancaster County and my husband grew up in Northern New York. And we're kind of plopped right in the middle of the suburbs outside of Philadelphia. So we're kind of out of our element. But we were blessed with finding an old farmhouse on almost two acres of land in the middle of a development. And our neighbors call us the farmers. So we're not sure (laughs) if it's a good or bad thing, but we'll take it. And we're thankful for having a little bit of land in this kind of crazy, busy area. Oh, it sounds awesome. And as long as none of the chickens are roosters, I guess you guys should be okay. You know, we accidentally had a rooster, but he had a short life. So that was a good thing. That was a good thing. (laughs) Poor roosters. They always get the short end of the stick. (laughs) Well, tell me how you got started homeschooling. So part of the reason is shortly after my son was born, Reed, we had just moved to the area and my husband was working at Karen University as the director of resident life. And we, when he was 18 months old, he was diagnosed with epilepsy. And because of that, his speech was delayed. And so it was just kind of, you know, I I just was watching him and I was always concerned to see if it was still going to be delayed or his seizures, they were hard to see um, if they were under control. And then the school district we were in was huge. Um, I think the graduating class was almost 2,000. And at the time, there was a lot of political strife. They were going on strike and it was pretty ugly. And I've been a public school teacher, so I kind of knew what large public schools were like. And I wanted my children to play outside and I wanted them to have time to read and play. And I knew that if they were in public school in the elementary, that probably wouldn't happen. So that was kind of my motivation, that whole combination of things, I would say. And so you started from right kindergarten with the first one, and you've been going ever I since. did, yeah. So this, I started in kindergarten, and so Reed is going to be in fifth grade this year, and my daughter will be in third, kind of. She's kind of third, fourth, you know, any homeschool mother will know what I mean. She's yes. kind of in between. <laughs> and then my youngest is starting kindergarten this year, so... And I'm trained secondary education, so it's kind of out of my comfort zone to have elementary. But thank goodness they're my children and somewhat forgiving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trained secondary as well. And uh, so it's mm-hmm. it's very much, if they would just come to me knowing how to read, I think I would be fine. I would have too. I hear you. And right. Actually, both <laughs> yes. would have been nice. Yes, being able to physically put the pencil to paper and move it around. Yes, I can yes. teach them how yeah. to make the composition, but it was the, yeah, it's the whole act of learning those baby steps that some days makes me want to just like roll my eyes back into oh, my head. And, I know. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me start you off with a multiple choice question. Sure. Your homeschool day is most like which literary classic? Would it be <laughs> A, cheaper by the dozen? B, much ado about nothing, C, around the world in 80 days, or D, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Definitely D. (laughs) It depends on the subject area. You know, if we're doing math, it's pretty ugly. But if we're reading together, it's pretty happy. And their mama's personality shifts accordingly. (laughs) So I'm either the best and most the happiest homeschooling mother who exists, or I am a bear who is ready to pull my hair out. So I would say 
I don't think my kids think I have a split personality, but I'm sure some days they might think it's possible that I do. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it is. I haven't been able to quite put my finger on why homeschoolers tend to the humanity side of things and, you know, not the mathematical side of things. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to work on that because my daughter's very mathematical. So I'm probably after fifth grade, I'm done. I won't be able to help her anymore. (laughs) And yes, I think there's definitely nothing wrong with outsourcing that mathematics. I actually have a tutor on speed dial. I haven't had to call her yet, but I have her ready to go. So there's no shame in that. (laughs) None at all. Well, if you were walking down the aisles of a homeschool convention vendor hall and you were to turn the corner and run into a younger version of yourself, what would you tell her? Run? No, just kidding. I wouldn't say run. (laughs) I would think about saying run. I think I would tell her to teach her children to read as early as possible. Because once they can read, especially when you have multiple children, they're more autonomous. And I, you know, as an English teacher, I know you don't want to push them too much, but I think it's okay to really make reading a very, very important part, whether you're reading to them or exposing them to books or looking at books. Because as soon as they can read on their own, it just opens up everything and allows you to have a little bit more freedom as far as you might need to go talk to the other child, go read your book type of thing. But I think the other thing is that I would also tell myself that not to do anything, if I'm not comfortable with a certain style of teaching, like I'm not going to choose a curriculum or I'm not going to choose a work of literature that I'm not comfortable with. And I don't mean morally or anything like that. I mean, it's just not the way that I think or the way that I my disposition, my personality, then I probably shouldn't do it because I'm going to teach best in my own gifted areas. I'll allow my children to branch off from that, of course, but I think I'll be my best if I can use my own strengths to encourage them and inspire them and whatever. And I think I would also tell myself, and I still tell myself not to try to conquer the world in a day. And I still am trying to tell myself that every day. My husband is still trying to tell that to me every day, Um, but it's definitely something that I need to hear again and again and again, that sometimes it's okay if all I've gotten done in the day was to have my kids sit down and read together or read a book and review their math problems. That's great. That's okay. And it's okay that they've done that because they're going to remember that and that's learning just as much as going outside and swimming in the pool or working in the garden is learning. Those all are part of their experience, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of times we tend to try to jam too much in and do too much. And they get so much out of just Mm -hmm. the basics. Living with you. Yeah. Just living with you and living life with you. Like they, you know, I never knew how to, I didn't do a lot of cooking or baking because I was always in school. And I just thought the other day, the kids were kind of driving me crazy. And I was like, because they just didn't have anything to do. That's what they told me. So I was like, well, okay, let's get dinner ready. And I just remember thinking, you know, this wouldn't happen for me. This wasn't my reality because I was always in school or playing sports or doing something else. And there they are using sharp knives and chopping things without, you know, cutting off appendages and, (laughs) you know, sauteing the sausage and working together. And I'm like, this is school right here. That's it. You know? Yeah, definitely good skills to have. Mm -hmm. Well, what book do you think is a must read for your children before they leave home? So asking an English teacher that is really unfair. (laughs) 
I saw um, the question and I thought, oh my goodness, like, what am I? And I just started and I couldn't pick one. But I, you know, I was like, I could say the Bible. Like, should I say the Bible? <laughs> what should I say? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, um, but you know, that's kind of a cop out answer. <laughs> I know, I know it is. It is totally a cop out answer. So I'll give you some. And I kind of honed into children before they leave home. So I tend to think older for older readers, just because that's what I teach. And that's what I'm comfortable with. So please don't be offended if I don't mention Dr. Seuss or you know, I can't think of any other author, really young author off the top of my head right now. I really think that there are several classics that are very, authors who are very worthwhile to expose your children to. I would say Charles Dickens, simply because he really has a really interesting, he, he blends history and really gives the voice of that time period, but allows you to understand a kind of like a socioeconomic divide and the impact it has on both sides. I also think though, Jane Austen, I'm going to say it. Okay, I'm just going to put it out there. (laughs) I want my boys even to have exposure to Jane Austen because I think it gracefully shows right male-female relationships. Somewhat unrealistic, but it would be a great way to enter the conversation about honor and kind of the distinctions between male and female and also see these pretty incredible female characters who have integrity and strength and intelligence. I also think that all children should be exposed early and often to poetry. One of my favorite poets is a more contemporary poet, Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, She's brilliant, and she might make some people feel uncomfortable, but she really talks about social issues and puts on and, and speaks that she takes on the persona, the person of these individuals, and really, really allows you to enter into worlds that are very different from some of ours. I also am, I never thought I would be a fan of any dystopic literature. But I think, especially with the current world today, I think reading Orwell's 1984, Bradbury's mm-hmm. Fahrenheit 451, M.T. Anderson's Speed, I think all these books are very, very important for children to read because they kind of talk about the role of government and technology and its impact on you and our responsibility and what happens when we're not responsible. So I know I just gave you a whole bunch of books. That's okay. <laughs> um, but there's some of them. <laughs> okay, but I, w- I do want to clarify for a minute. Okay. When we say children to read, and we're talking about something like 1984, Fahrenheit 451, we're really talking about those maybe 15, 16, 17-year-old children. Yeah. yeah, and you know, but I think that, I, I will clarify, Gwendolyn Brooks, you could read some of her poetry, you could read to younger students, and a lot of poetry out there is really, I think, young children can be exposed to it. I also think that we need to, I feel like in a lot of homeschool circles, I don't know if this is true, but a lot of homeschool circles, sometimes I feel like are a little resistant to adolescent literature. And I've really, in the past 10 years, grown to really appreciate adolescent literature. Lori Hoss Anderson, she wrote Speak and also I thought that was really well done for like a middle schooler to like ninth grader. I think there's some really excellent adolescent or young adult authors who are really, really important and really resonate with, they bring up subjects that are very, we don't want our children to experience, but we want them to know about, and they really allow us to dialogue. She also did the Chain series, Hmm. the trilogy. She's excellent. So there's some other really great young adult. I think adolescent literature kind of gets a bad rap sometimes, but there's some excellent, excellent adolescent authors out there. Yeah. You know, we have tried. I teach 
and direct a co-op here in town. And so, you know, we have a class of high schoolers and what we have found is we tend to read classic works, but we've noticed that when we can try to work in one of those more adolescent titles mm-hmm. that they really respond well to it. Thank and, you. I, you know, I'm talking even more classic adolescent titles. One of their favorites last year was A Wrinkle in Time. We, I just, we read that this past year. I read it to my children and they loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, it's a situation where they really respond to the book so well. They did Inside Out and Back Again at the end of mm-hmm. the year. And so when we were working this year on the literature list, you know, we were we knew we were reading the Iliad, um, mm-hmm. which is a pretty hefty tome. And we're reading yeah. Julius Caesar with a, a group of high schoolers. But mm-hmm. we threw the giver on the list. And we said, you know what, yeah. there's a lot mm-hmm. we're studying ancients. There's a lot of things we can draw in here, uh, some kind of mm-hmm. parallels to Plato and mm-hmm. his society and the society and the giver and things like that. Uh, yes. But we, down. Yeah. we knew mm-hmm. that they would respond to that work it would be something in that sea of heavy stuff we were giving them that would, would yeah, yeah. allow them. And there's to a lot of research that actually, I actually did my thesis on that using adolescent literature as a bridge to classics. So that's kind of, and classics or young adult literature in and of itself is just can be really well done. I know, I don't know, I think less so, but even the Harry Potter, my son became a better writer when we read that together. Mm. And I read it with him because I knew there were some things that I'd want to talk about with him. But I'll tell you what, he learned about semicolons through her. He learned about active verbs through her just because the quality of her writing. I think we forget sometimes when we read, it's not just the story. It's just not the theme. It's how they use their mechanics and their grammar to convey these things. And their young brains are just, if you point it out to them, they're like, oh, I want to do that. That sounded so good, and I want to write like that. If you point that out to them, it's it's amazing how their young minds just kind of soak that in. So really pointing that out. I should say, we're huge Little House on the Prairie fans. We did all the Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, those are just, I should say, those are, like, you have to read those. Yeah, yeah, standards, standards. (laughs) And if you can read them out loud, even better. They're just great books to read out loud, too. Most definitely. Well, that was a great list. We're going to have a long list of books for this episode. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's it's wonderful. So that's awesome. Well, if you had the use of a time machine for one day to take a field trip, when and where do you and your kids choose to go? So, okay, I talked with my kids about this one, and this is going to sound kind of lame, but it's the one that came to my mind first. I just mentioned Little House on the Prairie, but we would definitely go till to. Almanzo Wildler's Farm in New York just for the food. <laughs> I don't know if you remember reading yes. Farmer Boy, but I'm serious. Every time we're like, we're hungry, we want to be farmers, I want to eat all this food. So I think we all would like, we would, we love upstate New York. My husband's from there and we love farms and we love food. And we're like, it just seems like a really good time to go back. I know that's not even that exciting. I was trying to think, should I say like, Greece or, you know, ancient Greece or something, you know, and I'm like, no, but I they don't know, have I maple go. syrup in ancient they don't, Greece. They don't. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> or sourdough pancakes or, you know, fresh apples. So we're definitely going back to Almanza Wilder's farm. That's where we go. <laughs> I love it. That's fun. Well, how do you fix a homeschool day gone bad? Well, I have two. Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes they just need to go to bed. We all need to go to bed. But this is two things. And I think, again, it goes back to when I was talking about how like you kind of need to know your personality and your strengths as a learner yourself. 
before you teach your children, you know. And so from an early age, I've read to my children because that was modeled to me, and I'm thankful for that. And I'll tell you what, if we're having a bad day, we always have a book that I read out, that we're reading out loud. I read to them. And I will do this for as long as possible. I remember a couple of years ago, I had a wonderful, wonderful student in my English composition class in, at the university. She was telling me about the book. She was bright, excellent writer. I mean, all the things that like you want. She told me she was homeschooled. And in passing, I mentioned that I was reading a book. And she's like, oh, Mrs. Gleason, my mom still reads books to us. And I looked at her and I was like, you're like 18. She's like, it's the best thing. We all pile up on the bed and she'll read to us. And we've read, she just named this whole host of books that they've read together. And I was like, that's what I want to do. That's, you know, I don't care if they think it's weird, we're going to read together. And if we have a really bad day, if we just stop and grab that book, I'm happy because I'm getting something done. (laughs) I'm reading to them, but they're happy because, you know, we're just physically close, we're calm, we're quiet, and we're just still for a little bit. So I think that's good. The other one is to go outside, just go outside and get some fresh air and run, exercise, bike, work in something just to go outside and be in the fresh air and out of the house. I I would say that's the other thing that I would try. Well, you're kind of in a unique position because you teach college classes and you taught high school previously. So Mm -hmm. how has doing that kind of informed your teaching practices with your children? You've spoken a little bit about it because it sounds to me like you're very true to yourself when you teach mm-hmm. and you're not running off and chasing the next shiny thing because you know kind of what works with your own strengths and weaknesses. But yeah. having that experience, does it inform your teaching practices in any other way? Yes. I mean, and let me just clarify, you mean how does it impact? How does what I've learned in working with older students kind of impact how I teach my children? Yes. That, okay. I would say the biggest thing in my children know this. I teach English. I teach a lot of different courses, but when I teach English composition, we usually teach it one time a semester. And I often teach a night class for that particular class. And the next day after I have that class, I wake up and I'm like, my kids are going to know how to write. They're going to know how to put commas in the right places. They're going to know how to write these statements. I mean, I'm like, my kids are going to write because they are not, because I just dealt with, you know, like 20 really bad essays. (laughs) And my poor children are like, oh no, mama just graded. We're in trouble, you know? But you know, I, and I feel really passionately about this, but I just, I feel so, so bad for my students when they come in as college freshmen and they don't have this ability to write. And it really is because they just struggle to think critically. And I, it's such a disservice. I mean, they, they just, they have these thoughts that are kind of either trapped or they don't even know how to get them out. I think because of that, I've realized that the ability to write and comprehend what you're reading is, it sounds cliche, but my goodness, it, it is really powerful. In the age that we're in with how much information we're getting hit. If you don't know how to think critically through that and decipher it and almost stand up for yourself through writing communication, it's a real problem. You know, I tell my college students this. I was like, I feel strongly about your ability to think and communicate that in writing because you will lead my children. And that's a big job. And I take that seriously. And so I I feel that way for my children, too. I think that's something that I can give them. So a lot of my teaching practices, I have them writing I want to make sure they enjoy it. So I have them do all kinds of writing. They can write their stories. They have time to write freely. And they also have time when I'm like, you need to write like this. They can illustrate their writing. And I let them read a wide range of things. They have required reading, but then they get to choose the books they want to read. 
I mean, to a certain extent. <laughs> so I think that's the thing that I've walked away with is that I want them to see that writing is, is really, and reading is really reflective of how they think and can inform their thinking and really broaden their world and their ability to interact in that world. You know, it's interesting because Andrew Pudawa, who is from the Institute for Excellence in Writing, he talks about mm-hmm. how you can't get anything out of a mind if you don't, mm-hmm. you know, you have to put something into a brain in order to get anything out of a brain. And so if yeah. you're sitting there staring at a blank piece of paper and you're trying to write and you have nothing to say, it's probably because you haven't read enough. You oh, know, I agree. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing in there. And so do you mm-hmm. think these students in your comp one class who are struggling, do you think it's the fact that they don't so much have the ability to take what's in there and get it out? Or do you think that they haven't had enough put in there? I think it's a combination of both. I think a lot of the students who I noticed that really struggle have come through systems where they've been told what to write and they've been told how to think. And and early, somewhere along the line, they found that writing was a chore. I think, and I want to be careful here, but I think textbooks do a huge, are very problematic because they're written often very poorly and they're boring. And that's what the students are being asked to read, you know, as opposed to living literature. So I think it's a combination of both. I know that there is a, I mean, research will show that there's a strong link between students who read a lot and their writing and their critical thinking skills. The ones who read and write um, more fluently are the ones that have higher critical thinking skills. But there's not a lot of time in a lot of school settings. There's not a lot of time and emphasis on that. Because, you know, you have a 1 to 23 ratio or a 1 to 30 ratio, or they're not being given time to read in school. When I taught in high school, my colleagues and I established sustained silent reading and just gave our students every week, like 40 minutes, we did block scheduling, 40 minutes of just reading any book that they wanted to. And we got some pushback until they started to realize that students who weren't reading were reading, and it was impacting everything else. So I think... I don't know if that answered a question. Yeah, it did. It did. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's both. I think it's both. And I think a lot of our students are being told what to think and how to write. And they're summarizing, but they're not questioning. You know, they're just regurgitating, basically. Right, right. They never get to those higher level thinking skills. No, no. Like Bloom's Taxonomy, way down. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we'll uh, include a link. I love Bloom's Taxonomy and actually used it in a workshop that I taught earlier this summer as a way to help moms come up and form questions that they could ask their kids about things that they had read. And so we'll include a a link to a great Bloom's article for everybody in the show notes. So, well, a lot of moms worry if they're doing enough or if they're doing the right things to prepare their high schoolers for the, you know, writing at the college level and just the college level in general. So we've already Mm -hmm. talked about some things, but what other words of wisdom do you have for parents of teenagers who are, you know, homeschooling and getting them ready? Yes. So, I think that you can't. There's a lot of thoughts about grammar out there. And I think that teaching grammar in isolation is very, very ineffective. And by isolation, I mean like the grammar books that just say, here's 10 sentences, underline the noun. And I want to be careful with that. I know there's a time and a place for that. To some extent, you have to teach it in isolation. But I think at younger ages, it's really important that students understand that you can't have one without the other. If you're reading a really great book, it's not just because the story itself is good. It's because that author paid attention to style and mechanics and organization. 
that they're all together. And from an early age, I would point that out to children. I would say, okay, what a great story. That's exciting. Look at that sentence. Isn't that beautiful? Look how she said that, or look how he said that, or look at that comparison he made and make it very natural to come across that and expose them. I've stopped and been like, wow, I know it's going to sound really cheesy, but I'll be like, look at that colon. Isn't that, that sounds awful. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Look at that punctuation mark. That is a colon. (laughs) And I'll say, you know, look at that, like the placement, how it illustrates that. And, you know, I guess some people will be like, your kids are probably like, you're such a nerd mom, but they are used to that. They're like, yeah, that's great. And then they want to try that. And then eventually they realize what it is. I also think, I'm going to say, I think that sentence diagramming, even though it is a form of isolation, is actually really helpful visually at younger ages. I think it's actually really helpful for a lot of students. They don't do it anymore in the public schools a lot because it's very, it can be very time consuming. But you talk to people who are really good at grammar and understand mechanics, they usually will say, I had to diagram sentences. And it's very visual. My son does it. He's not like a genius, but he loves the visual part of it, that seeing the parts move together. So obviously, we talked about the reports of reading wide variety of literature. And, you know, if they're using textbooks, of being critical, of saying, well, wow, why do they only use passive voice and to be verbs all the time. Like how that's not very interesting. What makes it so boring? Having those conversations and asking your students from an early age to be critical, you know, to say what they like and don't like. I also think we need to, some practical things as they're going into college is to really help them figure out what we mean by a thesis. That's very, very important. And I find that many of my students struggle. What is a thesis and how your thesis should guide your entire paper and how your body paragraph should point back to that thesis. Just that concept is really important Um, in organization. One book I use, and I do use this for my advanced comp students, but I do think that a homeschooled child who was homeschooled and, and was a pretty good writer, Style by Joseph Williams is really, really helpful and written very well. And he really kind of shows how style is impacted by mechanics and grammar, like really great authors know how to manipulate commas and semicolons and participial phrases and positives, and that there's some pretty objective things that are going to make your writing stand out. So I think that's just some things that I would say early on that give them a foundation in grammar, but then show them where it is in literature. Don't teach them, don't compartmentalize grammar from literature. Like they, grammar is in literature. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So you want to give them the basically the grammar of grammar. You want them to know what the terms are and be able to recognize them so that later you can point out how they're being used yeah, um, and have yeah. these conversations about it because it's really mm-hmm. difficult to have a conversation about the metaphor or the simile that this author used if they can't pick out the metaphor or the simile to begin with. Yes, it is. And it's also difficult to point out parallel structure if they don't know, you know, if you can't say, well, look how they both have an independent clause in the same place. You know, it just, it's the language. And I tell my students all the time, like, you can't divorce, like, style from grammar. Like, you you can't. They are married, very much married together. And once you learn how to manipulate that, then you can break rules even, you know, but you don't have a right to break any rules until you understand what you're breaking you know, that type of thing. So, Right. Well, how do you do it? How do you balance homeschooling with your other teaching commitments and 
you know, what other encouragement do you have for moms who might be considering homeschooling and working at the same time? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's been kind of a precarious song and dance for the past six years, I'll be honest with you. But I think the, for sure, if you're considering working part-time or trying to, to navigate both, and if you're married, you need to make sure that your spouse is very supportive. My husband is extremely supportive. We both are very, we like to do a lot of things in a given day. He recognized from day one that homeschooling in and of itself is a full-time job. So anything I'm doing in addition to that is another job. You know, it's like, it's not just 40 hours a week now, it's 60 or 70. (laughs) So he supports me in various ways, including giving me time. Like, Charlotte, you need to go and do this. So I would say that's one thing is if you have someone to support you, you need to make sure that person is on board with your decision to do both because it's going to be, I mean, I teach this past year, I taught 21 credits. I oversee all the English comp instructors and I'll actually be teaching a Veritas course, a a course online. So I'm, you know, I teach Sunday school and adult Sunday school class. So I just, I do a lot and sometimes I do too much, but I think that your spouse has to be very supportive in that and also has to keep you in line. Like my husband, we have conversations where it's like, you need to take something off because you're, this Mm -hmm. isn't good for anybody, you know? So I would say that's it. And I would also say that I love to teach. Mm -hmm. I love to teach. So if you have, if you're going to work, you know, sometimes you're going to work because you really need to be financially. It's helpful. And it is helpful for us too. But I also love to teach at the college level. Like I love, I just, it's what I want to do. Do you know what I mean? There's part of yeah. it. Just, I'm energized by that. It's the way, ener- it's the way yeah. you feed yourself. Uh, yeah, it is. It kind of energizes you maybe yeah. when some, some days maybe the homeschooling doesn't because there's a lot of stress and weightiness that comes from homeschooling your own children. Yeah, and there so, are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. I understand completely. <laughs> yeah. And I'm used to, you know, I was trained. There's a reason why I chose secondary and then moved to, you know, college students and So for me, I think, and my husband says this, he's like, you know, when I'm overwhelmed, he's like, well, I know you're overwhelmed and I don't like it. He's like, but I can't imagine you. Um, I'm out two mornings a week and an evening. And he said, you need to think, what would it be like if you weren't ever out? And I'd be like, oh, for me, I would probably, it would be more, I'd have a (laughs) relationship wise, it would be more challenging for my children and I, it's good that their mother has somewhere to go. Yeah. I, and that I never thought I'd say that, but but I think even homeschooling moms that don't have another job, it's good for them to have something else, even if it's they're going to go train for a marathon or take a cooking class, like something that you get energized from that you have for your own. Exactly. That, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah, well, I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready for a pop quiz, Charlotte? I, yes. I am oh, ready. All right. Sure. This is the teacher in you. She's like, oh, yeah, just hit me with it. I can handle it. So <laughs> pen or pencil? Pencil. Early bird or night owl? Oh, neither. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right in between. Right in between. Well, I work at night, but not like till midnight. So night owl, I guess. <laughs> okay. Dishes or laundry? Laundry. Poem or short story? Seriously? Poem, poem. High tech or low tech? Low tech, low, low. (laughs) Dystopia or fairy tale? Dystopia. Not always, but yeah, now I'm dystopia, definitely. Talker or listener? Talker, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) 
preschool or high school? High school. (laughs) (laughs) That one was easy. (laughs) Yep, that was easy. (laughs) On the go or stay at home? On the go. On the go, yeah. Charlotte, is there somewhere people can connect with you online? Yeah, certainly. So I feel free to email me. I can give you my email address right now. It's just cgleason at cairn.edu. That's uh, where I work, but I check that email frequently. Yeah, that would probably be the best way to contact me. But yeah, I'd love to not just, I don't want to come across as like, I'd love to give you my wisdom and my all my knowledge, but just to know that there's other people out there, you know, and, and hear your ideas. I mean, you know, if you're a homeschool parent, you just, you speak the same language as other homeschool parents. And it's good to know that there are other ones out there. <laughs> and love to connect. Yes. Yes, for well, sure. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It was great. There you have it. Now, if you would like links to any of the wonderful book suggestions that Charlotte gave us today in the interview and to that Bloom's Taxonomy resource that we spoke about, we'll have all of that for you in the show notes for this episode. You can find that at edsnapshots.com forward slash HSP. 38, and we'll have everything for you there. Also, if you would like to request a homeschool mom interview, somebody that you know that you think would be fascinating, or maybe somebody who you follow online that you would like for us to have on the show, please do drop us a line and let us know who you would like for us to have. You can do that by emailing info at edsnapshots.com. And we'll process that request and reach out to that person and see if we can get them to come on the show. We always love to have the people on that our listeners want to hear from. We'll be back in another couple of weeks with another great homeschooling interview. Until then, keep on homeschooling. Homeschooling.